You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Your community church on the day after Halloween. I uh, trust you had a great Halloween night. We uh, had a trunk or treat, Halloween-y trunk or treat event here yesterday. We had 20-some cars passing out candy. We passed out something like 400 hot dogs and bags of chip and cans of pop. And we had, uh, we just really had a great afternoon. The Lord blessed us with wonderful weather. And uh, we just had a really good time. I, my understanding is we had something like 300 people come through. That's besides, besides people at our church. So... We, uh, it was really a, really a great time. So I appreciate so many of you were so uh, involved in that and uh, decorated cars, brought in candy, helped set up, tear down. I uh, appreciate Ashley kind of taking the point and coordinating that and did great work. And so I am really thankful to the Lord and thankful to you for a great, a great Saturday afternoon and a great opportunity to, we trust, bless our community and, and be involved in that way. So um, I pray that, uh, or I'd ask you to uh, pray that the Lord would use that to help us connect uh, with people in our community and, uh, and move forward in that way. Well, anyway, welcome this morning. It's good to be here together and uh, good to have this opportunity to worship. Uh, hopefully you are, uh, we're not passing out bulletins. Every, I've got about a nine-year habit of saying, make sure you read your bulletin, and we're not passing out bulletins anymore, so make sure you're reading your Springview Weekly. It is like the bulletin, but it is chock even more full with good stuff. So uh, there's uh, lots of room in there for all sorts of things. So make sure you're getting, uh, you're reading your Springview Weekly comes out on Tuesday. If you're not getting that email, uh, please contact Rose. You can just grab one of the cards in the seat near you, throw it in the black box that's on the wall back by the offering door, and just say, I want to get the Springview Weekly email. Here's my email address, and Rose will add you to that list and make sure that you get it. Uh, also, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. I encourage you to do the same thing. Grab one of those cards and give us some information. We'd love to get in touch with you and get to know you a little better. Uh, we're not passing offering plates either, so if you brought an offering this morning, the Lord has uh, led you to give, that you can drop that in that black box back on the back wall as well. Let me read a few verses to you as we begin this morning. Before I do that, let me remind you also, there is no youth group tonight and there is no evening service. Uh, we spent a long time here yesterday, so take an evening home with your family and uh, relax there, uh, maybe get together with friends, and um, we will love. Uh, Resume our evening services next Sunday. Let me read you a few verses as we begin from Psalm 67. It says, May the Lord be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Well, let's pray as we get started. Lord, we are grateful this morning that you are God and that you are gracious to us and have blessed us. 
Father, you have been good to us in countless ways. If we were to count our many blessings this morning, uh, we would run out of time. You have been good to us in so many ways. And Father, we want to, to meet this morning as a grateful people. Father, I know that some of us have come in here with, um, with not blessings on our mind, but trials and difficulties, frustrations and disappointments. And Lord, I pray that we, in the middle of those, would not lose sight of the goodness that you've shown to us. And, and Father, at the same time, I pray that we would bring those things before you, knowing that you care for us. Father, knowing even that the difficulties we face are things you are using in our life for good. And Father, I pray you'd give us that kind of faith and that kind of confidence, that we would worship this morning with gratitude and joy. I pray during our time here that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would encourage one another, help each other toward faith, toward confidence and trust in you. I pray that you would bless this time, that you would be honored in it, that we would praise you and honor you with our hearts and minds and lips this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, you may have heard there is going to be an election, and um, it's not one of our more important elections, but it's an election nonetheless. Now, uh, every year, every, every new presidential cycle is uh, the most important presidential cycle election we've ever had in history, and, uh, or so it would seem. And uh, um, in a sense, that's true, right? Elections matter. Things happen. They change or they don't. There are consequences to those elections that impact uh, the welfare and, and good of people, real people. And so elections are significant, and we don't want to minimize that. At the same time, regardless of who wins this Tuesday, I want to assure you that God will still sit on the throne of the universe. We need to be very confident of that. Uh, the biggest risk this Tuesday is not that the party we don't prefer assumes or retains power. The biggest risk is that we would cease to trust God and we would start to trust our politicians over, over God himself, that we would, we would start to uh, make um, winning over our ideological enemies more important than loving those who disagree with us. That is an easy temptation. It's an easy temptation across our society, and sadly, it's an easy temptation for us in the church. And so our greatest concern as we think about this election coming up is that God would... If you think back to the early church, right? Do you recall the political clout that the early church had in Jerusalem and in Rome and in Egypt? And no political clout. Almost constantly marginalized, sometimes persecuted, all sorts of struggles. And do you remember how much that squelched the missionary power of the church? It didn't squelch it at all. You know, the, the famous saying, I forget who made it, but even in the early church, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that God actually grows his church through hard times. We don't wish hard times in our country. We surely don't. But God uses, uses all sorts of circumstances. He is working in all of this in ways that we could not work better than. And we, we think, well, if this happens, that's good. If this happens, that's bad. And God says, what I'm doing is going to be right. And he is, he is able to accomplish perhaps more good, even if our preferred candidates lose, than he is through their victory. And so we need to trust him. We need to trust him. We need to love those that disagree with him. Uh, there, is, um, there is no future in the church or in the society, I believe, if our aim is to destroy those who disagree with us. 
We have to win. And there's, we're just not going to move forward like that. that. That leads to more and more conflict, more and more fighting. And what God has called us to, as much as possible, live at peace with all men. So, listen, I want to take a minute to pray for this election, but I want to encourage you not to be fearful, not to be angry, not to feel like if this doesn't go the way I think it should go, all is lost. Listen, all is not lost regardless of of who wins. It really isn't because God will rule and God is on the throne either way and he will accomplish good and his purposes. Think about... Think about how God used even the Old Testament. Think about what God did with his people when he carried, he he allowed them to be utterly destroyed, their cities leveled, carried off to exile, and God says, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to accomplish my good purposes. God is going to do good, and he's going to accomplish his purpose. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven no matter what. So let me encourage you to joy and peace, and let's strive to be, by God's grace, people who are remarkably unified, harmonious, and loving of those who disagree in this time. So let me take a moment and pray, and uh, then Jeremy's going to read Scripture, and then uh, I'm going to speak from Scripture, and as we uh, move to the end of our service, we'll do our singing then. And of course, if you uh, want to leave before we sing, uh, you can certainly feel free to do that. But I'm going to pray, Jeremy will read, and then we'll, we'll keep going here. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, we, we recognize that these are difficult and challenging times. And, and we recognize, we, we confess really, that it is easy for us to be anxious and fearful about things that are coming up. It's easy to look out over the world and say, there is and there will be much conflict. Lord, I pray that you would give us great faith, not faith in the American people, not faith in democracy and the American way of life, but faith in you, faith that you are sitting on the throne of the universe, that you are in the the hard times and the easy times, the political victories and the political losses, accomplishing your will and your good purpose. Lord, you, you are establishing a kingdom that cannot fail, that will crush every earthly kingdom and will last forever. And so I pray we would put our hope in that. Father, I pray that this time, even if things go exactly the opposite of the way we want them to go on Tuesday, Father, I pray we would see this time not as a time for despair and entrenchment and fighting, but rather as an opportunity to display the love and grace of the gospel to each other and to the community around us. Lord, everybody fights. There's constant conflict, but it takes, it really takes the Spirit of God to love. And so I pray you'd help us to do that. I pray that you would would cause this time to be a time for our church of great growth. Lord, not just our church, but all over the country. There's conflict in and around churches. There's so much trouble, so much division over things that ought not divide us. And so I pray for our church and, and for the church as a whole, great unity, great patience and bearing with one another, uh, that our impulse would be toward graciousness and kindness rather than fighting and trying to win, Um, Lord, that would be a remarkable thing. That would stand out in a world characterized by conflict and darkness, the light of gracious kindness 
and bearing with one another. So I pray you'd do that here. Lord, I do pray for our country. I do pray that you would do great good here, that you would give us great leaders that would lead us toward righteousness, toward peace and unity. Father, I pray that you would give us better leaders than we deserve. And I pray that you would, you would advance your name and your kingdom and your church, even in this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark 10, 17 through 31. Subtitled, The Rich Young Man. And as he was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, <clears throat> excuse me, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Thank you, Jeremy. We are in week four of a series entitled Back to the Basics. Back to the Basics. Uh, and we considered in week one uh, the gospel message. Our main message is our main thing. Jesus crucified for sinners, dying in our place, risen again to eternal life so that all who put their faith in him can have new life and live with him forever. Our main message is our main thing. We talked about gospel message. The second week, we talked about gospel power. Everything we want to see happen in our lives, in our families, and in our church, we can't do. We don't have the power to do it. They are fundamentally spiritual things that require the power of the Holy Spirit. So we must seek God's power through prayer and faith. Then last week, we looked at gospel culture. What kind of culture is the gospel creating? You know, gospel culture is a people that are brought together by the truth of the gospel should have their relationships shaped by the gospel. They should be shaped by the gospel. You remember that story that Jesus tells 
about the, the servant who has an astronomical debt. And he goes to his master and he, say, he begs for, for mercy and forgiveness. And the master says, okay, all is forgiven. You're free. And then that forgiven servant goes out and finds another servant, a, a fellow worker of his who owes him a pittance and says, pay up now. And the whole point of the story, obvious to everyone hears is, but you were just forgiven so much, right? What God has done for you, shouldn't that impact how we live and relate to each other? So last week we talked about gospel culture. And I want to think a little with you this morning, what does gospel culture feel like? Like we could say, because of what the gospel has done in our hearts, it should impact the culture we have, the way we live and relate to each other. All right, we understand the principle, but what would that feel like? You know, the truth is, when you relate to other people in your home, uh, in the world, in your workplace, in the church, often what we're basing that relationship on and how we operate that relationship on is how we feel. I would like to think that people come to church and the first thing they say is, well, what do you believe? But the first thing people are mostly saying, even if they don't say it or articulate it themselves, is what does this place feel like? How does it feel to be part of this? When Kelly and I first moved to Kentucky to go to seminary, uh, we began to look for a new church, of course. And uh, so we started to look for a church. And we were, and I was preparing to go into ministry, going to seminary, I, we were pretty thoughtful, opinionated church shoppers, Right? I mean, we're thinking about ministry. We don't just, you know, it's not just like, oh, I hope we want to go to the place with the prettiest carpet or something. We, you know, I have a theology of church and ministry. So we're pretty thoughtful, particular about, hey, what should church be like? Well, in Louisville, Kentucky, there are tons of churches. And so we visited, uh, I don't know, six, eight, ten churches. Uh, almost all of them were like, fine, we could probably go to this church, but let's try out some more. We went to another one, it's fine, we go. Well, finally, right before Christmas, um, one of my wife's co-workers, who went to a large church that, that I knew of, and uh, some of our seminary professors went there, and so I knew it was probably a pretty decent church, but um, one of my wife's co-workers said, why don't you come to our small group, they call them soul groups, come to our soul group's Christmas party. We're meeting at Chili's over on East uh, Hurstbourne Parkway, uh, and uh, just come to our group. So my wife knew this one girl. Um, we didn't know any of the other people. So we go to Chili's, and we sit down around the table, and we start to eat dinner. Six, seven couples, right? And just had a great time. And a couple of the other ones were in seminary. All were about our age, all just starting or about to start families. And, and by the time we left Chili's that night, we already pretty much knew we're probably going to go to this church. How did we pick that church? Well, I mean, it was kind of the appetizers at Chili's and the conversation around the table, right? I didn't go, well, let me, let me inquire into their philosophy of ministry. And uh, read. I mean, I knew what their statement of faith was already, but it was our same Baptist faith and message, the same one we have here. But we were drawn to that church because we were drawn to those people. That's how it works for most people. We're drawn to this. If we could meet every week with these people, in this kind of environment, with this kind of culture, uh, this is the kind of people, this is the kind of situation I think we would do well in. Oh, that's the way most of us make these kind of decisions. What, how would we describe that? What does gospel culture feel like? And, and what should it feel like? 
Well, I think as we look to the Bible, we could say that the best word to describe gospel culture is family. A gospel culture should feel like family. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us here as we look at this for a few minutes. Father, I pray now as we think about these things, as we think about your word and we think about your church, Lord, we want to, we want to get it right. We don't want to turn church into just what we want it to be. We, we don't want to make church into the things that uh, please me and does for me what I want it to do. And we, we want church to be what you want it to be, what you created it to be, what you've called us to make it. And so, Father, we'll need help. Um, what we're going to look at today, Father, is so different than many of us think or operate or feel at, that, that we're really going to need your spirit to instruct us and, and move us in heart and mind this morning. But I pray you'd do it. I pray you would begin to shift and change our thinking to, to line up with your word and to line up with your ways and, and to, to help this church become the place that you want it to be and that, that we need it to be to become all that you've created us to be. So Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Give me wisdom and clarity. I give each person here listening minds and hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is a family. I don't just mean that it's like a family. Like a good way to think about church is kind of like, no, the church is a family. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, at the end of a long section that's talking, if the first part of Ephesians 2, you know well, we uh, passed it on a card a few weeks ago, it's all about the gospel, how God saved us because of his great love when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, he immediately goes into a section, starting in verse 11, talking about how God is bringing conflicting peoples, Jews and Gentiles, into one group. And he sums it up in verse 19 and says, so then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That word household, that is family language. Paul says the same thing in second, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, so that you know how you ought to behave in the household of God. The church is a family. We have the same father. We have been adopted into this family the same way by the grace of God through faith in the gospel. The church is a family. And that's both helpful and it's challenging. It's helpful because we already know what a family is, right? You know, if the Bible told us that, that um, the church is kind of like, well, think about carbon-14 dating. And we, you know, that's not going to help, right? Family we know. We understand what family is. So it's helpful, but, but it's also challenging. And it's challenging because, first of all, not all of us have had great experiences of family. Some of us have grown up in wonderful families. Our parents loved each other, loved each, them, loved each other deeply, loved us deeply. It was a wonderful, peaceful, flourishing kind of place. Most of us have grown up in families that were at least a little bit less than that, right? The relationships are or were marked by a little more conflict. Some of our families busted up early in our lives, right? So family for some of us is, has been difficult. All of us, to 
to some degree, some of us, some of you to a great degree, family has been a source of much grief and sorrow for you. And, and so it's hard sometimes. But, but even, the fact, even the fact that our families may have been difficult reveals the fact that, that we know something of what a good... The, the fact we can say my family experience was bad means I have an idea of what a good family would look like, right? So that's one of the challenges we think about church as family. There's another big challenge, though, is that the way we think about family is really different than the way the New Testament world, the ancient Near Eastern world around the writing of the New Testament thought about family. We just think about it very differently. I'll give you a few different examples. When we think of family, we think mom, dad, 2.1 kids, right? Living in their home. But when the New Testament world thinks about family, it thinks about mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles. Right? Partly because they all tended to live in the same place. They're all here. My family interaction isn't just with, you know, you know, I have a sister that lives in Midland, up northeast of Saginaw. I got a brother that lives outside of Bridgeport. I got another brother that lives in North Carolina. My family is spread all over the place, right? But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Let me give you one example. Remember, Samuel comes to the home of Jesse because God has said, Saul's no good, we need a new king, right? So gathers going to be one of your sons. And so what does Jesse do? He doesn't say, well, well shoot, you know, Eliab lives up in Shechem. He's a school teacher up there. And, um, you know, Kilov is a landscaper over near Gaza. And, uh, you know, it's like, get your seven sons. All right, we'll go get them. Well, there's one more, but he's in the backfield. We ain't going way over there, right? The seven sons are all there. They all live here because that's just what families did. Today, families spread often all over the place. But the view of the, the ancient Near Eastern world of family is not just mom, dad, and two kids. It's, it's the whole family structure itself. Or think about marriage in the ancient world. In the ancient world, marriage was almost always arranged. And it was arranged not by daughter of mine, which young man do you want? It's mom, it's dad in this family, and dad in that family saying, what would be a good match that suits both of these families? And we arranged it often very early. Think about vocation. David has, or Jesse has seven sons we mentioned a moment ago. And um, what are those guys going to do? What does Jesse do? He's some kind of shepherd. What do they do? Some kind of shepherding. Generation after generation after generation. The family world of the ancient world, the family life of the ancient world is very different than the family life we have today. Um, I think I might have shared with you, with you some time ago, but Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, gives three kind of thesis statements about what family was like, attitudes towards family in the ancient Near East. That, that A-N-E is ancient Near East. Three things he says. First of all, in the ancient Near East, in the world of the New Testament, the group takes priority over the individual. Now, now that itself is radically different than the way we think about these things today. We are society, many people, not just Christians, many people have characterized Western society as, as radically, even ruggedly individualistic. 
It's a bummer. You think about how many songs. It feels like there's a ton of country songs like this, right? Where it's like, daughter is in love with the boy, right? And the family says, no, that's terrible, but, but she is going to marry that boy anyway, right? In the ancient world, they would say, what do you, no, that's, that's absolutely outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. But, but we don't think that way. And nobody taught you that in school, right? You didn't decide that. Well, I'm going to be group-oriented or individually-oriented. That's just, that's just how we look at life in the world all the time. It's like a preset that comes on our thinking because of where we are. But that's not the way it was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the group takes priority. And the second factor there is that a person's most important group is his blood family. Your blood family is your most important group. And so family is everything. It's absolutely huge. I mean, we see some of that even today. I mean, it's, it's, well, in other parts of the world, that's still true today for sure. Family, clan, I mean, think, think Hatfields and McCoys, you know, in Appalachia, right? Family's everything. So that's your most important group. And then the third thesis, which is probably the most radical one for us, he said the closest family bond is not the bond of marriage, but the bond between siblings. That's the closest family bond. And he gives, the, Joseph Hellerman in his book on this, gives multiple examples and looking at the ancient world, looking even at the early church, how people would put their, uh, their siblings even above their spouse. Now, the, and the worst thing you could do would be to be disloyal to your family. That'd be just about the worst thing you could do would be to be disloyal to your blood family. Now, this is radical for us, right? It's just pretty radical. And, and we could spend a long time relating this to what the Bible teaches about family. You know, the New Testament isn't afraid to confront the social attitudes of its day, right? And the New Testament doesn't accept everything that was true about its culture. It's quick to point out the evils of idolatry and, and how um, things in marriage relationships should be different than they were, uh, in the church should be different than they are in public generally. The, the New Testament isn't afraid to point those things out. But the New Testament seems to take this kind of strong family attitude and bring it into the church, particularly as we think about point number one. The group takes priority over the individual. It brings these kind of attitudes in. Think about how often in the New Testament fellow Christians are referred to as brothers or sisters all over the place. And that wasn't just like some colloquial thing that people were saying all the time in the culture. How's it going, brother? People didn't say that. But in the church, they did. All the time. It was radical that these people who were not blood siblings would call each other brother and sister. And so the way the New Testament is looking at family is really different. I think about the passage that Jeremy read. Maybe you're still there in Mark chapter 10. But in Mark chapter 10, look at the end of the passage at verse 28. Jesus says, or um, Jesus is talking about how difficult it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. Who can be saved? And in verse 28, Peter begins to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. He says, We've left it all to follow you. Do you remember back, keep your finger there, turn back a few pages to Mark chapter 1. You're in Mark 10. Look at Mark chapter 1. 
Jesus had come and called them in Mark 1. Look at verse 16. Jesus, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'm going to give you a new job. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, you have to see how outrageous that is. It doesn't feel that crazy in our context. Right? I'm going to leave one job going to leave here, right? We, we raise our kids with the mindset, I'm raising you to get you out of my house, right? You're going to live another place, and you're going to provide for your own needs, and I'm trying to... And, but here, Jesus comes along and says, you need to leave this job and leave your father and come follow me. And they do. And I guarantee you, Zebedee, their father, said, what in the world are you doing? How disloyal, what a betrayal of our family that you would leave. This is our job. This is what our family does. We fish here, and you're supposed to keep this going for the next generation and the next generation. And Jesus says, well, come and follow me. And they leave their job. They leave their father to follow him. Do you see what Jesus is calling them to? He's calling them to a new family. It's not, do you want God or do you want your family? The decision is, is it going to be your biological family or my new family? And these disciples drop everything and follow Jesus. See, if we really got into the radical teaching of the New Testament, we would understand that the church is the Christian's first family. It's the Christian's first family. We looked last week in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, uh, they've started to undergo persecution, the disciples have, and we looked at how in verse 32 it said, the full number of those who believed, so the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were of one heart and soul. They no longer said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Everyone's looking out for everyone else. Everyone's sacrificing what they have for the benefit of everyone else. What does that sound like? That sounds like a family where we look out for each other. You think about, many of you were parents. All of you have had parents, right? And what do parents do? Whatever's best for them? Not often, right? If we did what was best for kids, we'd leave stinky babies in their crib at 3 o'clock in the morning because we need our sleep, right? And maybe that's just kicking the can down the road. That creates a lot of trouble a few hours later, but right? parents are constantly making decisions, not about what's best for me, right? What's best for my kids? 
What does my wife need? What does my husband need? What do my children need? What does our family need? That's what families do. That's what this family's did. So therefore, when you get to the next chapter, Acts 5, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? They sell their property, and they act like they're giving all the money. We're good family members, right? We're giving it all. And instead, they were only given a little bit of it and keeping most of it for themselves. And you recall that when they lie, explicitly lied to the apostles, they're struck dead. And the church and the city is like, whoa, what, what in the world is going on? What was the problem? Was it that they didn't give all, all the money they'd made? No, that wasn't the problem. Peter says explicitly, when you sold it, it was yours. You know, and you didn't, have, you didn't have to give any of it. The problem was that they were acting like, hey, we're all about family. But in truth, they were still really about them. And that corrupts a church. And God acts quickly to address it. Look, you and I, I, I'm not pointing fingers like blame, like, but you and I live in a culture, we breathe air that says, what's in it for me? What's best for me when I show up at a restaurant, when I show up at some entertainment venue, when I show up at church? My natural question is, what's in this for me? I hope I learned something here this morning. I hope I like what the preacher says. I hope that there's songs that I like, right? There's just, we don't even say them out loud, but those are the kind of questions that naturally roll through our minds because it's just the kind of environment we live in. And the New Testament is constantly pressing us back to not me, but we. Not just me, but we. We don't tend to think about church as our first family. We, think, we tend to think of our biological family as our first family. That was radical in Jesus' day. It's radical in our day, too. But Jesus was radical about this. I mean, think back, staying in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, if you turn over, if you're still in Mark 1, just a couple pages over, Mark 3, verse 31, Jesus has begun to teach, he's begun to perform miracles, he's got disciples following him, crowds are following him. His family think he's nuts. His family thinks he's nuts. And in Mark 3, 31, it says, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And we assume that Joseph, his father, has probably passed away at this point. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is making a new family. It's a new family. The point isn't biological families no longer matter. The point isn't you don't have to care about them anymore, right? We know the New Testament is full of instructions on what parents are to do for their children and how children are to relate to their parents and how husbands and wives are supposed to relate together as a picture of the gospel. He's not saying that our biological families no longer matter. But what he is saying is, I'm making a new family. And this family is going to last forever. This family never ends. Our earthly families will end. 
One of the most startling things I think Jesus says in the Gospels when they try to trap him, asking him about the man who, who dies and the wife marries the brother and he dies, she marries seven brothers. And which one, in, at the end, Jesus says, well, you see, you don't understand because in, in, in heaven, in the new heavens and earth, there will neither be married or given in marriage. And we can't even hardly understand that. There's no marriage. I'm not going to be married in the heavenly kingdom. I, I, can't, I can't even... Like, I almost feel like I have to figure out a way for that not to mean what it says. But it doesn't mean we won't have family. God has a new family, a family that will last forever, a family that ought to be our first family. Listen, I know how radical this is. You probably have many questions. Wait a minute, but what about, I'm thinking, I don't quite, I understand. It was radical in Jesus' day, too. When Jesus says, who are my mother and sister and brothers? I, the people in the room go, wow. He's going to dishonor his mother and sister and brothers like that? That's his blood. It was radical then too. But Jesus is making a statement, a strong and powerful statement about who really is his family. But listen, the spiritual life we want, the meaningful relationships we want, the church we want, are all on the other side of embracing this kind of radical vision of church as our first family. Here's why. Despite all of our individualism, no one grows up into everything God created them to be on their own. No one grows up into everything God created them to be on their own. We like to think we can. We like to think we know we have the resources in us. I've just got to find a deeper, better part of me to become all. Like the me that I need is just deep. That's not how it works. God uses the relationships. To be sure, he uses the relationships we have in our biological family, but especially he uses the relationships we have in our church family. Look, we see this clearly back in the book of Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, turn there, we'll, we'll finish up there this morning. In Ephesians 4, we were there last week, later in the chapter, looking at what a gospel culture looks like. Uh, kind of the key verse there was in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you, God has forgiven you, you forgive one another. But earlier in the chapter, starting in verse 1, Paul has written in the first three chapters all about the glories of the gospel. We saw in chapter 2 that the church is the household of God. It's the family of God. And immediately he begins to talk about what does life guided by the gospel look like? Look in Ephesians 4.1. I urge you, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness. Notice how these are all interpersonal. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, he doesn't go immediately say, okay, now we've got to start working on your own personal development. He moves immediately to relational development. You need humility. You need peace. You need unity. You need patience. Because, verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse 6, one God and Father of all. Why do we have to move to this kind of unity, this kind of peace, this patience, this humility? Because we all have one father. We're all part of the same family. We have to move toward these kind of relationships. What's the goal? Look down to verse 11. 
It says, and he, that's God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. Let me stop right there. God gifts his church with people who equip each other for the purpose of what? That we might all attain. We all. We all. Think about in your family, right? Think, think about your family in your home. Think about if you decide in your family, you know, the main purpose for this family is for me to thrive. I mean, we act like that sometimes, right? But suppose that's your attitude to family. The main object in this family is for me to thrive, right? You know that's not going to work. You know that's not going to work. I mean, that's where we start as kids, right? We take every, we take that to every relationship we have. But as parents, are like, I can't, if I make this all about me, this family's going to be a disaster. And you love your kids, right? And you do so many things. You work hard, you discipline, you do all sorts of things because you want them to thrive. A healthy family isn't where I thrive. A healthy family is where we thrive. Not just me, we. And we know, instinctively we know that most of the troubles happen when I or someone in my family starts thinking about me, not we. And Paul says here, as he talks about the church, that God has gifted the church with ministers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. What's the goal? It's the same goal we have in our families. Maturity. We want to grow people up into Christ. No one grows up into everything God created them to be on your own. You do not have the resources. You do not have the self-awareness. You do not see the things in your heart. Listen, you know that's true, not because of what you know about your own heart, but what you know about the people that you live with. Think about the people you know that have the most relational conflict. Maybe the people you have the most relational conflict. Just think about that. Does somebody come to mind? Do you have anybody like that in your life? I'm sure you do. And I also can almost guarantee that as you think about that person, you think, well, they just don't see the way they really are. They don't see what they're doing to the people around them. They don't see the conflict they're creating, right? And here's the thing. Somebody somewhere is thinking about their person, and it's me or it's you. And they're saying, I don't think Ben sees that when he says that, this is how it makes people feel. I don't think Ben sees how when he acts that way, it bothers people. And that's true for all of us. We don't see ourselves well enough. What we need is other people to speak the truth of God's word into, their into our lives and receive it humbly. Nobody grows up into everything God created them to be on their own. We wouldn't expect that. It's just like with our kids, right? You, you don't just leave them alone. You know, you need help. It, sometimes we'll be at the store, and um, my wife is in here, so this rarely happens, but um, sometimes we'll be at the store with the kids, and they get a away from me a little bit. Not real far, never dangerous. 
no real risk, but maybe a little bit away from me. This happened a few weeks ago. And, uh, and so I'm there, and I can see the child, but they're far enough from me that adults come walking by and see, you know, see my four-year-old and start going, right? Where's the adult with this kid, right? And, and if I came along, or if, say, a Costco employee comes along and says, oh, don't worry, that kid will be fine. He just runs around here, and he just, if you leave him to himself, he won't have any issues, right? And that adult would say, no, no, no. Kids, kids in public places, kids in general, they need adults around them. They don't leave them to themselves, right? Listen, you and I, all of us have pockets, some small, some big, of spiritual immaturity. We need spiritually mature people around us because we don't grow up in everything God created us to be on our own. We just don't. In our pride and vanity, we'd like to think so, but it's not true. We need people, people that love us, people we know that when they speak to us, they're not speaking to put us down or get one up on us, but are speaking to us for our good. Right? Look on to verse 15, right? So we don't want to be children tossed about by every wave of doctrine, cunning, all this stuff. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, look, we, not me, we, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, which means every part of the body, every member, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What that means is, as a family, I can't look and say, this group's doing well, I'm pretty pleased, if you're all dying inside, collapsing spiritually. Well, at least these guys are doing good, right? And work. Same with your kids, right? If you've got four kids, you don't say, well, you know, two of them in their life are falling apart, but at least I've got two that are doing well. We'll go with them. They could be part of our Christmas card and picture this year, right? <laughs> we don't do that, right? I heard Tim Keller say once that you're never happier than your unhappiest child because your heart is so bound up in them, right? Just the way it is. The whole body. We want to see the whole body grow. And look, the truth is, even in our biological families, what often happens is competition, right? I got to be better than you. It's sibling rivalry. It's what are they saying about me? It's, that's, not, that's not what we're aiming for. In God's family, we speak the truth and we speak it in love because we want the whole body to grow, to grow into mature, they say manhood, but the mature personhood, right? to grow to mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We want to see people grow up into Christ. Everybody grow up into Christ. So there's no room for competition. There's no room for fighting. There's no room for me over we. No, a healthy spiritual family wants to see everybody grow. See, no one grows up in everything God created them to be on their own. So Springview Community Church is building a healthy spiritual home. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build a healthy spiritual home. That word healthy is important because spiritual families can get as unhealthy as biological families can get. And so we've got to be careful, right? How many cults start off sounding like a spiritual family that gets really unhealthy really fast? But we're trying to build a healthy 
spiritual family where everyone can truly flourish as they find their place in God's family. Everyone. By nature, we come and say, is this a place where I can flourish? And that's a fair question. But if that's our last question and our only question, the rest of us are in trouble. Is this a place where I can flourish, where we can flourish together? You know where that word flourish comes from? I have a friend, his name is Marc Lafleur. He comes from the French, right? The flower. To flourish is to grow, right? Flower starts with little seeds and little plants, and eventually they, they flourish, right? They bloom and become everything a flower is supposed to be. That's what we want in our families, right? That's what we want to see in our kids, isn't it? We want to see them grow up and become everything God wants them to be. That's what we want to see in our spiritual family, too everyone to grow up into everything God wants them to be. It won't be the same. We won't all be exactly the same, right? Some of us will be good at this, and some of us are gifted for that, and some of us will thrive in this way, and some of us will excel in this way. But we're not competing, right? The goal isn't me before, before you or before we. The goal is we want to see everybody flourish as we become part of God's spiritual family. Listen, over the next three weeks, I want to think about Three big things that would characterize us, three big things that absolutely must be true if we're going to be a healthy spiritual family. I think this is super important. We're talking about going back to the basics. This is as basic as it gets. We understand our message. We understand it must come and minister in God's power. We understand we're trying to build a culture, and that culture looks like a healthy spiritual family where everyone can grow up and flourish and become everything God wants them to be. But listen, we'll only do that as we find our place in God's family. So we must pursue this wholeheartedly. We must pursue it diligently. We must be willing to let it speak into our lives and our understanding in ways that will push us and will feel kind of radical to us. Our individualism is deep, It is natural, it feels right, and God is pushing us into a family where everyone can flourish. We'll spend the next three weeks thinking hard about what would that look like. I want to think in the next three weeks about three key commitments a healthy spiritual family would have and three critical actions that that family must undertake. We'll embrace that over the next month, Lord willing. Let me pray with you. Father, I pray that you would grow us into a healthy, gospel-soaked, spiritual family. This this is undeniably for our good, and at the same time will be undeniably hard for us. It It will call out from us new attitudes, new ways of thinking, new ways of relating, new ways of approaching our friendships, our relationships, and our church. That, that we'll need your spirit to work in us. We will want to revert to the old ways. We will want to revert to, to me before we. And so I just pray you'd help. I pray you'd give us much grace. Lord, if we really embrace this, it will change us. It will change us in radical ways that will be for our good. We will see more and more people flourishing. 
we will become an environment, a culture, a place that more and more people will want to join and be part of because they'll see they can flourish here too. Lord, we know our enemy doesn't want this. We know that our enemy is constantly tapping us on the shoulder saying, think about yourself, think about yourself, think about yourself. And so I pray, I pray for, for supernatural work of your spirit to thwart the, the ambitions of the enemy and to advance your name and glory in us for our good, your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.